So, okay, you're well educated, you've been on a load of training courses, you've got a head full of knowledge and facts, but can you perform? It has been a hard day's night. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. Now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun. Knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. Learning. We're calling this episode Repeat Performance because in the first place it's an interview with an expert on performance and secondly because last month I appeared on that expert's podcast where he asked me about my life and work and now I'm returning the favour. Or to put it another way, I'm getting my own back. So Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact, who is he? Hack Facts. Guy W. Wallace is a performance analyst and instructional architect and has been designing enterprise learning since 1979. He's been a partner owner at three consulting firms and has served more than 80 consulting clients, primarily in the Fortune 500. In 2010, Guy was the recipient of the Honorary Life Member Award for the International Society for Performance Improvement. So, Jay Curtis, Head of Themes. I sense you're working from home this time. Correct. Have you got a problem with that? Yes, you're fired. Joking, only joking. Of course we're okay with flexible working on the learning hack. This was a really easy gig for you, John. You didn't even have to write a questions list. You just popped the same old questions back at him that he asked you on his podcast. Which were about? His background and his lifelong commitment to performance improvement within organisations. We featured Guy in our sister podcast, Great Minds on Learning, as part of the episode on workflow learning. He is uncomfortable with being referred to as a theorist, since his work has always had an intensely practical focus, and his natural modesty causes him to push back on some of the more laudatory things we say about him. When you listen to this interview, however, and hear how steadfastly he has stuck to his evidence-informed, empirically-based approach to improving performance within organisations through his life, I think you'll agree it really is a pretty great mind we're dealing with here. So welcome to the podcast, Guy Wallace. Thank you, John, for having me. This podcast episode is a chance for me to get my own back on you for very kindly, I should say, including me in your series of HPT videos, where you ask me a bunch of highly intrusive questions about my life and work which I'm now going to ask back at you. See how you like it. (laughs) So, Guy, number one. A, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in the uh, southern suburbs of Chicago in Illinois um, and in northwestern Indiana and then back to the suburbs of Chicago and then to the suburbs of Kansas City. So I moved a few times there in my youth. And where did you go to college and what did you study? Well, I went to the University of Kansas and I started off in the School of Architecture, but my math skills were behind. And uh, it was uh, suggested to me by the guidance counselor that I look for something else. And so I started taking uh, classes in radio, TV, and film. And I did that. Um, I, I went to college three semesters. I was putting myself through. My father's business had failed when I was... Uh, after two months in school, so I was on my own since then. But uh, I, uh, I, uh, I dropped out of school when my draft board told me that it was safe to do so because nobody, nobody was drafting. Nixon wasn't drafting for the Vietnam War anymore. So I dropped out of school, lost my student deferment, got drafted, joined the Navy at my father's insistence oh. instead of going into the Army. And then in the Navy, I got to go to the Defense Information School to become a journalist, print, broadcast, 
uh, print and broadcast journalism, and I went back to my ship and uh, did that on my ship. But then I went back after the Navy, three years in the Navy, I went back to Kansas, finished my degree in radio, TV, and film. Right, yeah, interesting. And where do you now live and work? I am in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Western North Carolina. I'm semi-retired, so I, I, I do some work, but uh, I'm not pursuing engagements. But if something comes my way, I, if it's interesting, I'll take it on. I'm being bothered to do people's podcasts like this. <laughs> yeah. So let's cover your career progression from um, school and the stuff you've mentioned there to your work today. Um, share what were some of the most interesting things you've worked on in your career. Uh, what did you do immediately after college? And take Well, I was, in college, I was working uh, for two and a half years as a part-time inside salesperson for a lumber center. They had uh, 180 some different centers across North America. And they were beginning, they were going to convert their training from 35 millimeters slides with audio tracks to video. And at a management conference, I had worked with three managers and they went up to the vice president of human resources and said, you must hire this guy. And they did. And I went to Saginaw, Michigan, to the headquarters of Wix Lumber, joined the training services organization, 10 persons big. And uh, uh, I, I did that for about two, just under two years. And then I, uh, my wife got transferred to Chicago and I went to Chicago and secured a job with Motorola a brand new training organization that they put in place to help them with a major initiative, a major change initiative. And I did that for about two years. And then I left and joined a small consulting firm, somebody that I had met while at Motorola. And I was a, became a business partner there of that individual, along with my wife who had joined that company. Um, then a divorce led to breaking up that company, and I took half the staff and half the business and started up a new concern, did that for five years. And then about 20 years ago, I went solo, and that brings me to today and uh, my, my current business. So I did that uh, for a number of years in Chicago, and then I moved to North Carolina to be closer to family. So that's how I ended up here. Uh, I've had some, I think, very interesting projects. I I, I learned a lot in doing them. I think some of the highlights are uh, for AT&T Network Systems, the old Western Electric manufacturing arm of what we in the States called Ma Bell when they were a monopoly. They had oh, yeah. uh, the monopoly status had en been ended by our U.S. Justice Department. And uh, I went to work and did what I call a curriculum architecture design for product managers. Previously, the product managers had been facilitators and expediters of in the factory to get certain equipment pushed through in a hurry to get out to one of the Bell operating companies across the U.S. And um, McKinsey had come in and told them, okay, you don't have a product management function. You have expediters. You're going to need to professionalize this group. Just under a 1,000 oh. at the time. But, uh, but I spent from 1986 to 94 working with them and they were one of my biggest, largest clients for most of those years. And I did uh, many things with them, uh, developed the, the content of the curriculum architecture. Uh, I delivered an eight day course to pr new product managers 31 times, including five times in the Netherlands for their one of their international operations. So that was a huge learning experience for me after having been in Motorola serving manufacturing materials and purchasing people. So I kind of come at things kind of with an architectural bent and engineering bent to instruction. And by instruction, I mean both performance support and learning experiences or what we used to call back in the day, job aids and training. Yeah. And so I, I come at things with a kind of a, a approach to the modularization of content and all of that. But uh, moving on, uh, I, I did a project for NASA, the, uh, yeah. After the Challenger uh, accident, uh, the uh, Presidential Commission had uh, determined that uh, you know there was a there was a need for management uh, training development uh, because you know they had some had blamed somebody, so they blamed managers. Although many of us know that wasn't the case, but but uh, I was really involved with my AT and T client at that time and my business partners. Uh, two people did the analysis for that effort, but they brought me in to do the design of the 
what today is known as learning paths, what back in those days was called a training blueprint or a training and development path. And I ran a three-day meeting with uh, people that had been involved in the analysis. And it was a it, it was an interesting project because of who it was for. But all these people in the room knew the astronauts that had died in the Challenger accident in 1986. So this was one year later and it was still fresh in everybody's mind. And I had to pause my facilitation process to allow people to cry. And everybody in the room cried. It caused me to cry, it caused the other two people from my company in the room to cry because everything that we did brought to mind, you know, these individuals that had lost their life in that accident. Um, so that was a, a very interesting project. And again, we were looking at, uh, you know, management and what's the job and outputs and tasks and how do you then architect or engineer a modular curriculum to address the performance needs because they varied from manager to manager. So there was all that in that. Um, another interesting couple of projects was one for Arco of Alaska. This was in 87. Um, our client wanted to put in a pay progression program, and we were the third consultant group to come in and, and try to do this. The first two had put in a bunch of knowledge and skill tests, paper and pencil tests. These were for oil field workers, roughnecks as they're sometimes called, and uh, they didn't like paper and pencil tests. So our approach was from the get-go to come in and do performance tests, create a battery of performance tests and it, where you did the job. And if it was an open book world where you could reference, you know, vendor materials or whatever, you could do that in the test. The, the trick is, can you produce the output? Can you repair a valve? Can you uh, troubleshoot a communication system that controls all the valves on uh, at the oil field? So this was up in Prudhoe Bay in the Arctic Circle. Um, very, very cold. It was just a very interesting project. And I was brought in to modify my curriculum architecture design methodology so that we wouldn't produce specifications for modular curricula, but we would produce specifications for performance tests, which were called qualification and certification tests for that company. But uh, we did that. We built over 2,000 tests for te 20 different technical populations. These were all tied to a pay progression program, so we had everybody by the wallet. So we had the attention of everybody. We were met when we got off the airplane in Prudhoe Bay by a committee of the top leaders of the workforce who were skeptical and wanted to quiz us on, you know, what the hell we were going to do and how we were going to do it. We explained our methodology. They were, they skeptically, you know, kind of bought in and said, well, okay, but we'll see. And we did the project. Our client in that project, uh, seven years later in 94, went to the Alaska pipeline. So the 800 mile long pipeline from Prudhoe Bay down to Valdez in Alaska so that the oil could be loaded onto ships. And we did the same project for them and the Justice Department wouldn't let them borrow the analysis data or the designs or the tests from that other company. We had to do the whole project all over again for basically the same technical job populations facilitating groups of master performers to define the job and then to build the tests. And then the tests were administrated by master performers who were handpicked to, you know, uh, facilitate the testing uh, and all of that. But anyway, so that was a very interesting project. Again, going to Alaska, I was busy with other clients. I came in there, proved uh, into the skeptical new people in this new company uh how we would go about doing this and a funny thing about that project was that um the company uh Alaska pipeline services company was was going to outsource many of the jobs to vendors suppliers and many of the people that we worked with in our initial meetings had already been laid off they had their pink slip as it's called and so our client was really worried that people you know, wouldn't work with us to do this. It would sabotage the whole effort. And we convinced them, no, let's go ahead. People are going to be talking about their jobs. They are experts in what they do. Their egos will demand that they actually participate, especially in a room full of other master performers, and help us to define what is the job tasks, what are the outputs produced, how do you know good 
outputs from bad outputs. How do you know good task performance from bad outputs? And so that's all the data that's used to construct these performance tests. And that was another successful project. Um, and then my last one, I guess I'll speak to is that I did a project with General Motors from 1996 to 2000. They had been interested in, they had uh, recently completed a, an initiative in 94, I think it was called Bugum, Best Under General Motors. What they had discovered is that the maintenance costs for all of their various curricula, their courses, was killing them. They had redundancy of courses. They had a dozen of the same course created by this facility, that facility, et cetera, et cetera, throughout their whole uh, system in North America. And the maintenance alone was killing them. So they decided they needed to do what the car industry itself was doing, which was basically using standard parts across the entire product line. So. I remember asking my client at one point, you know, how many different cars, trucks, and buses do you guys produce? And the answer was, I think, 146 or seven. And they said, so do you have 146 or seven different batteries that go into all those vehicles? And they said, no. And I said, well, that's what we're talking about here. We're going to create content for you that we can use for one target audience and then either use as is or after modification for another audience and minimize the sets of content that you have. And that's that was all part of my architecture design. Well, they heard me present on this in 95, decided that guys approach to this was way too complicated and they wanted to go with something more simple. So they embraced what's called DACOM from the uh, University of uh, Ohio, Ohio State University actually. And DACOM stood for design a curriculum. And I had investigated this when I was working at Motorola. And design a curriculum was really not anything to do with design. It was all about the analysis where you define, you know, what are the outputs, the accomplishments, what are the tasks, and what are the skills? Three levels, fairly simple, and General Motors liked that a lot better. So they embarked on using that for over a year and created more redundancy than they had before because skills, you know, when you articulate, you know, what are the skills for this job versus that job, you can use different language so easily and then create, you know, new variations on the same thing. So um, they eventually came back to me and asked me to do this for them and to train their staff and their uh, key suppliers staff in my methodology. So that lasted five years. We had five uh, presidents of General Motors University when the fifth one came in. Uh, he booted all the current vendors out and brought in his favorite vendors from his prior company. And so that was the end of that gig. But the life of a consultant, that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. I've been very, very lucky uh, for darn sure. So the projects you've um, outlined for us and described for us so interestingly, um, they kind of span those years when technology began to come into things. So could you tell us a little bit about your first exposure to what you call HPT, which sounds a bit like a medical condition, but stands for Human Performance Technology. Yes, the, the technology word is, is, has a different connotation nowadays than it did back in the 80s. But technology stood for application of science. So HPT, uh, created by uh, the National Society for Performance and Instruction, NSPI, back in the day, which is now ISPI. But uh, so it was called performance technology. Then somebody slapped the word human on the front end of it because all performance is a human endeavor. Um, but so this is the application of science to improving performance of humans and their systems, their bulldozers, and their computers, whatever they've got. And... So uh, then ASTD came along and kind of borrowed the whole notion and called it human performance improvement. Same thing, it's the result. Technology, HPT is the means to the ends of human performance improvement, if you will. Um, and so my first exposure to that was on day one at Wix Lumber. Um, my, my bosses were recently new to Wix Lumber as I was. They had been there less than two weeks. My boss and my coworker, we were in a three-person department. We were the program development department and they brought in um, and introduced me and then schooled me, trained me to approach instruction 
in a performance based way. And we, they embraced the methodologies of a guy named Gary Rummler, the late Gary Rummler now. Tom Gilbert and Bob Mager and Joe Harless were the first four people that I really got exposed to in their approaches and methods. And so that was my very first exposure. So I've been doing this since day one. Didn't know any better. I have a radio TV film degree. Don't know anything about training or instruction or learning. And they kind of schooled me in that for that first two years that I was there. Some great mentors to have. So when did you, maybe I should ask, ask the question about what I thought that question meant, but didn't. When, when did the kind of digital technology side of things become an issue and how did you how how do you kind of see that as having happened has it been a good thing bad thing bit of both well i think that the i think ultimately it's good it's been poorly addressed i think but but to me in the 43 years i've been in the business the only thing that's really changed is the technology the digital technology the computer technology that enables us in doing our work and deploying it or making it accessible. So computers were kind of a brand new thing. I didn't get a computer on my desk until I was in the consulting group. At Motorola, we had computers in our department, but there were administrators, the former secretaries that actually did all that kind of stuff for us. But eventually it got to every last person. And then, uh, you know, there was, there was computer-based training in your company intranet kind of thing. And it, you know, it was, it was yeah. very limited in terms of what you could do with that. But I started doing that kind of training for my clients back in the early eighties. But, and Motorola, I remember I working with my clients at Motorola when, when the word was, you know, Hey, computers are coming to the factory floor and we're going to embrace things like MRP materials requirements planning. And then that morphed into manufacturing requirements planning and that morphed into enterprise resource planning ERP. And so that whole notion yeah, yeah. of how you use computers and digital technology to, you know, get your arms around and define and manage the, all the assets that are needed to produce your products or services. That was all coming kind of online at that time, which fit very well with, the work of Gary Rumler, who was a process-oriented guy. He was a former engineer, and and before he got into the what what today we would call the learning business, the performance-based learning business. But also at Motorola, Motorola, I learned about the total quality management movement, movement, and Debbing and Duran and all the other quality gurus. And this was all kind of coming together at this time. Computers are coming; they're going to help us get a handle on this. But in the learning business, when they started coming up with authoring tools, where now everybody and anybody can create content, that became a problem. It much cheaper and much quicker to just have everybody go over there, sit down, take their assignment and crank something out. Now, whether it was any good or not, it was an efficient way to do something that was very ineffective. Uh, subject matter experts that were asked to create content for their companies um, are, you know, are subject to this situation where their most knowledge is non-conscious. What the research shows, people like uh, Richard E. Clark, uh, Professor Emeritus from the University of Southern California, you know, when, in, for decision-making, 70% of what knowledge is used to make a decision is inaccessible to the person making the decision. They can't tell you. You can ask them, their egos will demand that they give you an answer, but that answer might be accurate, it might be appropriate, but it'll be incomplete. It'll be missing up to 70% of what a novice would need to make a similar decision. Um, so that, that's cognitive task analysis is his methodology to go after that. And um, the other part of, the, of task performance is behavioral tasks, the things that we can see, we can count, we can measure. Um, so that's observable. And, but experts will only be able to identify up to 60%. So that means they'll be missing 40% of the things that we, they do and we can see, and we might catch those gaps when we observe them. But that other issue of cognitive. So, so when authoring tools became available, subject matter experts were creating content that was incomplete and didn't give the new performer, the novice performer, what they needed in order to do the job. So we, what we did is we packaged a bunch of content into formal learning 
And that forced then people to go into informal learning immediately afterwards because it was incomplete. So they didn't have everything that they needed in order to go perform. And so that's either leads to trial and error learning uh, or social learning, informal social learning, where I ask my neighbor, they tell me, of course, they can only tell me 70%, 30% or maybe 60%. So it's still partial. So that still forces me to into trial and error. So I think that, you know, the whole notion of of informal learning and 70-20-10, uh, or I flip that to 10-20-70 myself. But, but so that's always going to be a condition because we we will always struggle to make our content complete, complete for the novice so that they have everything that they need in order to go perform consistently and up to standard afterwards. So the digital technology came in. I think it's a cost saver. It's a time saver. It reduces cycle time. It reduces touch time. We can do reviews much quicker if we have a good process behind that. But but so I think that there's there is good, but it's been poorly implemented. Um, we're looking for the quick, easy route too often. We get that. <laughs> and so we produce a lot of content that's not been really worth keeping up to date. We have a, we, as an industry, we create a lot of throwaway content. We we don't track it. We don't treat it like the valuable assets. You know, we spend a lot of money on that kind of stuff. Corporations do enterprises do, but. It's just it, we we are opportunity rich, as the old joke goes. Yeah. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance. And yet, who uses it? despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy. I've written a white paper with Learning Pool that shows how you can use the spacing effect to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. Meet the evolving nature of work with Cornerstone Explore, a holistic people growth experience that delivers a fully integrated, personalized journey of learning, skill development, and career mobility for every person. I share all the ways Cornerstone Explore is designed and personalized for the ways your people want to grow and work, but this is only a 30-second ad. To learn how you can unite people growth with business success, visit csod.info slash future ready. So you mentioned there uh, a, a couple of influential people in your life, Gary Rumler and Dick Clark. Who or what were your biggest early influences in your practice of evidence-based performance improvement, which is really what you, you, you do? Um, maybe uh, were there other people beside them, articles, books, particular things that inspired you? Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go back to my first day on the job and I was given three things. And one of them was a three or four page mimeographed uh, from a newsletter of Gary Rumler and Tom Gilbert and their company Praxis. So this was dated 1970, uh, nine years before I got into the field. And it was about guidance and how guidance was better than training. And guidance later on became known or was known at the time, by the time I got involved, as job aids or performance support or workflow learning. So this notion of guidance. So I was told that read this thing first this is what we're going to do in this new training organization or in this training organization where my two coworkers, my boss and my coworker had just come in and they were all going to do guidance or job aids. We were going to call it. And uh, we're going to avoid training because that forces people to memorize things and they can't memorize those things. They'll forget in the forgetting curve and all of that. So we're going to use this notion of yeah. guidance. Well, our clients hated that, hated the idea. They wanted traditional training. You know, that's what they were expecting. And so, Rather than fight them, we simply embedded job aids into training and gave the people what they needed in order to perform and made our clients happy that we had packaged this in a more traditional kind of a, uh, packaging, even though everything was switching over to video. But that's what they wanted. So, so I was told that, but then I was also given a book by Bob Mager and Peter Pipe called Analyzing Performance Problems or They Really Ought to Wanna. And this book is is all, is one of a what's later on uh, became known as the Mager Six Pack, but this book talked to me. I read it the very first night. I was in Saginaw, Michigan. I was living in a hotel. 
my life hadn't caught up with me. The movers hadn't shown up with any of my stuff. <laughs> so I was, so I had the whole evening free and I read this book and I was so excited about this book that I bought four copies the next day and sent them to my best friends in college who later on mailed me the U S mail 1979. Uh, what the hell? You know, what the hell did you send me this book for? I don't get it. And, but anyway, so, but it had really lit me on fire because we were going to do performance-based instruction, and we were first going to decide whether or not knowledge and skills deficits were the issue, the root of a problem or opportunity, and we're not going to do training if it's not going to solve the issue. And that really fired me up, and this is, that was really probably deeper than the newsletter article in terms of what is performance technology or human performance technology? Then they also gave me the third thing they gave me that very first day was Tom Gilbert's book from 1978, one year earlier, Human Competence. Now, it took me three times to get through that book, and I didn't probably read it for another year or so before I actually, and, and it was when I started in chapter 10, read to the end, and then went back to the beginning and read it. Then I could read the whole thing. It made sense to me, but start, I had two false starts before I actually got through the book. But So that was the Human Competence book was very impactful to me also it it was an advanced organizer for what i was going to see in professional groups uh, local chapters and national conferences when i'd look at people's task lists and things and i could never make rhyme or reason out of them because i'd been you know oriented a certain way already i was looking for what's the outputs of your tasks here's a bunch of tasks you know random task listings you could have alphabetically organized them for all the good that they might do but Gilbert wrote about uh, the cult of behaviors, and his it was his critique of the training business, learning business back then, that too often we addressed behaviors if they were the be-all, end-all, and behaviors are a means to the ends of right. outputs, or what he called accomplishments. And so the cult of behaviors is where we treat behaviors as the only thing we train people on behaviors we don't say situationally you might behave this way or that way the complete opposite depending on the situation we too often simplify things and get caught up in looking at behaviors and the same is true then we look at topics the same way we don't teach you how to apply them in your real world you know, an authentic practice with feedback, we don't teach that. We teach you a topic, we teach you a behavior. Uh, sometimes we teach tasks without talking about, well, what are you producing? So, because that's the ultimate criterion is, was that output worthy? Is that a good one? Does it meet the stakeholder requirements? So those people were very, very influential. I got involved with MSPI the second month on the job. I was taken to a chapter meeting 100 miles away in Detroit. Uh, on the way back, on the car ride back, my boss told me, well, we signed you up for the newsletter committee. <laughs> That's how people were volunteered back in the day by your boss. So I got involved with that group and met many of the people that, you know, be kind of came were, were figures, gurus back in those days. And I just learned from them. I was like a sponge. I just absorbed everything. And, and my issue is that I'm not, you know, academically trained in this business. And I think I know a lot of things, and I think a lot of things that I know are valid, but I can't cite the research. I can't cite the work that people did to validate any of that because it wasn't important to me. It was more important for me to adopt and adapt what I was learning and apply it in my job context. And that was the most important thing, not where this came from and all that stuff. I trusted my resources, um, but there were dozens and dozens of people that I learned from early on. And it's, you know, almost unfair for me to try to name the long list. But those four people were my very first start in this, those books, those articles. You know, nowadays, some of these people are on videos. And so those would be worthwhile for others to follow up with. So in a way, you become the SME, the expert who can't necessarily say <laughs> 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 everything that you need to know, because you're a practitioner. Bingo. Yeah, that's you know, uh, so I suffer from that uh, probably more so than others because other than, you know, academics who learn to cite, you know, where these things come from and, you know, if it was replicated research or whatever, I, you know, that wasn't important to me. It's, it's maybe become more important more recently to me. Um, 
as I try to help others see the light, see what are evidence-based or evidence-informed practices versus em the embrace of faulty notions or, you know, a watering down of some strong approaches and methods and concepts and tools, but, but they get watered down and they get weak and there's you know, and that could be a problem if you're dealing with high stakes performance, if you're dealing with low stakes performance, you know, okay, just get the job done and move mm. on to something that's more important. So it's been fascinating to, to, to hear the story of this and, and of your fascinating career and how you've, how you came early on by the sound of it to your focus on performance improvement and how that's developed through your career. The next question calls for brevity. If you were to give us a 30 second elevator speech on what you currently do, what would that be? I'm a performance analyst and an instructional architect. I, I think I, that's less I, than 30, yeah. but it, it, very good for brevity. Okay. Um, no, I, I, so I, I would say that if, if somebody... Do you want to give a longer well, answer now? You know, so if somebody wanted to know more about that, you know, if you're in the business, you might know about that. If you're in the business, you might not know about that. And if you're at a garden party, you have no clue. Yeah. Yes, yes. Don't go to garden parties. <laughs> so as a lifelong learner, as we all are, where is your current focus or next focus for learning? I, you know, so I don't have a deliberate focus or foci in things that I'm trying to learn now. I'm a, I'm 69 years old. Um, I'm, you know, at the, I'm semi-retired. I will, you know, eventually wind this down even further than I have now. So I, most of my efforts now are writing books and articles and blog posts, trying to share what I've learned from others and trying to credit them so people can follow up further with them. So I'm trying to help other people learn uh, and take advantage of some of the things that I've learned and maybe I've extended something, maybe I've not adopted it exactly, but adapted it and try to share that, encourage other people to adopt what they can and adapt the rest. That's kind of one of my mottos. And because I think that people, we've lost the performance orientation. There are there yeah. are a lot of people that have that performance orientation and talk about it. You know, uh, Bob Mosier and Conrad Gottfriedson, and you know Patty Shank and Miriam Nealon. And there's a, there are a lot of people that are out there doing that. But they we are rare. We are the rarity. We are the minority in terms of how most people in the profession approach learning. And do they have a performance orientation? Well, th this is most important in enterprise learning context versus an educational learning context, where we don't know, you know, what are your job tasks going to be? What are you going to be producing? We just think you need to know this, have this knowledge and or skill. But in an enterprise, we can most of the time, not necessarily all of the time, but most of the time we can identify, well, what's your task performance and what are you trying to produce? And so I'm, I'm really trying to help people, other people, you know, learn that, learn from my mistakes, learn from what I've learned from others, uh, and hopefully hope mm. them climb the learning curve. More specifically, uh, are you working on or writing anything particular now? What's your current focus as we speak? Well, on what you're writing? yeah. So I've I've since the pandemic started, I've written uh, six books, fairly large books. Uh, five of the six of them are in the three to 400 page range. Um, but part, part of it is to update some of the language from my prior books. So I've been leveraging off of past writings. I've been writing and publishing since the early 80s. And so I've got a lot of content to pull from and to update because the, the language has changed. Um, and so to make it more accessible to younger people coming in, I've tried to update a lot of that and package in even more how-to. A lot of my books in the past were to uh, be part of a workshop, and here's a book to read before the workshop, and here's parts of the book to read after the workshop as a reference materials. And so I don't do that anymore, so I've kind of revisited all of those. But now I'm working on a series of mini books. I've written uh, nine of them, and they're all 
you know, in the 100 to 125 page range. I think I've got one that went up to 160. But I'm trying to make make that narrower so that people who have a need for just this aspect can get it. And they don't have to buy a book that's got a lot more content in it. I want them to all kind of hang together, uh, be compatible with each other. Um, and so, but that's the thing I'm kind of doing right now is I've got uh, maybe up to 20 of those planned. Now, sometimes I've started one of those books and I thought, eh, I don't think I need to do this book. And so I dropped it from my list. But yeah. That's that's what I'm up to lately. You mentioned language there. Language obviously is very important. Is there a performance improvement term or phrase that you would like to define for us as perhaps you feel it's being misused or misconstrued or you just want to put your spin on it? Well, I think uh, the, uh, the phrase that I would use, performance improvement consulting, sometimes known as performance consulting. And I think it's being misconstrued and misused. To some, it seems to mean learning with a performance orientation, so performance-based learning. Um, and performance consultants are then going to help their clients figure out, you know, what's the, what's the learning we need to provide people. But the late Joe Harless back in the 80s said, you know, he's got a problem with people who call themselves performance technologists when everything that they ever produced is training. And yeah. so my model for that I've borrowed, and, and it's a mashup of the Ishikawa diagram from the 1950s in Japan, influenced by Deming and the quality movement, and then Tom Gilbert's behavior engineering model from his book from 78, uh, I did a mashup of this, and so I've kind of created my own fishbone diagram where, you know, the first thing that I was taught by Gary Rumler is if you got a problem or an opportunity, the first thing you look at is the process itself. You know, is there one? You know, is it any good? Are people, if there's one but no one's using it, why? You know, so it's all that. Focus on the process and then begin to look at what I call the enablers of that process. There's human enablers and there's non-human enablers or environmental enablers. And... So I, this performance improvement consulting, when you're doing your analysis for instruction, I believe that we should take the order, not push back, be an order taker, and then use a process and a methodology that takes your clients along on the journey for analysis or discovery or whatever you want to call it, and uncover for them what's really going on. And it are the gaps in ideal performance a cause of people's knowledge and skill deficits? Or is it a lousy process? Or is it a lousy data and information? Or is it lousy tools and equipment? Or is the consequence system out of whack with what you want? And oftentimes, um, you know, the numbers vary on this, but all the gurus in the past used to say, yeah, maybe about 20% of the time it's going to be a knowledge and skill deficit if you're addressing a problem. So, you know, I, my saying on this is that if, if a client, if a training request is for new hires, that's to be expected because they don't know. They need they need instruction. They need training. They need learning. Yeah. But if a, the training request is due to a performance problem to solve a performance problem, that should be suspected. Nonetheless, I believe you should say, yes, I'll help you with that. And Joe Harless taught us all that we should say, yes, and I can help you even more if we can do this front-end analysis. And then my thing is that let's see what the data tells us. And then it's a business decision to continue on with a learning development effort or to pivot to a performance improvement and non-instructional effort to fix the process, to fix the data, to fix the consequence system or whatever. And if you change, if that change that you implement is requires instruction or learning to support that change, then you could be involved in that. But, but we shouldn't lead with you know, I'm a performance consultant, and so therefore I'm going to help you figure out what, what learning you need. That's beginning with the solution in mind and not the performance in mind. Solutioneering. Yes. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned some of your early influences. Um, what about more recent in influences? Let's, could you give us a list of some of the people who've influenced you more recently regarding your evidence-based practice for performance improvement? Uh, who, who's around at the moment that you rate? You can mention as many uh, Learning Hack podcast guests <laughs> as you like. 
Well, I do enjoy your learning hack podcast, and I so I, I ha I've written a list here. I wasn't fishing. I wasn't fishing. <laughs> sure. Um, all right. So, uh, Judy Hale, um, uh, Civil Asylum Tiagarajan, which most people know as Tiagi, um, Harold Stolovich, uh, Roger Addison, Klaus Witkum, Jim Hill, Richard Clark, Jeannie Farrington, Clark Quinn, Matt Richter. Will Tallheimer, Patty Shank, Miriam Nealon, Julie Dirksen, Jane Bozarth, and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens more. There's a lot of good people out here that that people should be learning from and that I have been learning from of late. Um, and, and so the, these, I think that, you know, there, today we have the, the digital networks. It's so easy. You know, back in the day, we had to go to the monthly conference, you know, the local chapter meeting, and then go to the annual conference, and there'd be two or three conferences here in mm. North America that people would go to, and you were quite limited. Now we we are, we have a wealth of resources and ways to connect with people. I think that that's really important. And so, uh, the, so I, I have a... Uh, I started a series of blog posts back in 2012. I called it my first Friday favorite guru series. And the first Friday of every month, I, I tried to acknowledge, you know, people that had been influential to me, direct mentors or indirect mentors. They didn't even know they had influenced me, but I wanted to acknowledge them and share that so that people might take a look at what those people had to offer because they were very important and, and instrumental in my development. And so I've got, I had 42 and then I added two a few years later. And I just this morning made a list of another 15 people to add to that list. Um, so, but th so there are many people and, and there's a, there's a lot to learn from. There's a lot of good people out here doing really good work. And lots of future guests for my podcast. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> so last question. Do you have any parting words of wisdom or guidance, uh, word you mentioned earlier on, for our audience, especially for those new to the field related to all things performance improvement? Yes, I'm um, going to assume that most people here are in the learning and development field profession. I think that Mostly, focusing yeah. on the performance requirements is number one. I have three things here. So number one is focus on those performance requirements and enable them, whether that's with learning or something else. And if you're not an expert in that something else, help your client find the right people to affect performance because that's what it's all about. Even in a learning organization, it's not all about learning, it's about performance. So if we can help our clients in that, help them avoid expensive learning and development efforts and deployment when it wasn't necessary in the first place, you know, that's to the good. So you have to have that performance focus. And there's many people with many different models that, that are all pretty much the same. So it wouldn't hurt to learn one and start with that and then expand and look at some of the others. I think this, uh, the second thing would be, you know, you're coming into the field network. And just like your mama told you back in the day, be careful who your friends are. And so be careful who's in your network here. You need to begin to develop a sense of what's valid and what's not, what's snake oil, what's foo-foo, and avoid people who, you know, they may be nice people, but they're they're espousing things that are not valid and they will send you down the wrong path. And so to keep on the straight and narrow path, an evidence-based path, um, or at least where things where the research doesn't dispute what it is that's being embraced, because there's a lot of things that work, but we don't have any research one way or another. So you can, it's okay to go with that. But so network with people that you learn to trust and shed the people in your network quickly when you learn not to trust what they have to say, um, or at least don't take their advice uh, to heart. Um, I think the one thing I learned from Tiagi, and then I also learned this from Fire Sign Theater, uh, a little group that was uh, from the from the 60s and 70s, and their their fourth album was um, "We're All Bozos on This Bus." So Bozo's a clown for those who don't understand that. Um, but yeah, but so I think that we we need to take our work seriously but we should never take ourselves too seriously. And that was a lesson that was uh, reinforced by Tiagi, um, who's kind of a, a, a jokester, if you will, with his wry sense of humor. 
So I think those are the important thing. Focus on the performance, build your network, and take your work seriously, but not yourself. Lots to take seriously in there, there I think. Um, Guy, it's been great, this um, back and forth here of uh, your questions for me and then my questions for you. Um, I had a lot of fun answering them myself. The fact that you've your answers to the questions were so much more interesting than mine. I'm putting down to the fact that you wrote them, so they're your own questions. <laughs> I, and I was happy to ease your burden getting ready for this particular interview by <laughs> letting you... Oh, wow. You know, it saved me about five hours. You know. <laughs> but thank you very much uh, for appearing to uh, agreeing to appear on the podcast and, and for taking the time today and just for being fabulous. Thanks a lot, Guy. You're most welcome. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to Guy and to our sponsors, Learning Pool and Cornerstone. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review, and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. I'm off to the Learning Technologies Exhibition and Conference in London now, back as an in-person event after two years and we'll be featuring a Learning Hack special recorded mainly at the show next time. Great Minds on Learning Season 2 has now come to an end and we're in the process of preparing Season 3. We put a lot of time, research and care into preparing these podcasts. To keep doing that, we need support. If your company is interested in helping provide that support as a sponsor of Great Minds, our email address is in the show notes. Stay curious, learning people. Now I finally get it.